You're listening to Culture Matters, a podcast of the Village Church. This is Adam Griffin, and I'm here with my co-host, the Adam Hawkins. Adam, how you doing today, buddy? Feeling good. Good, man. Hey, let me ask you a question. Have you ever given anything up for Lent? Every year. Every year? What do you give up? What's the weirdest thing you've ever given up for Lent? Mm, I don't give up weird stuff. I like to follow, typically, uh, the Village Church puts something out where it gives suggestions, and you can kind of do week by week. And what I've liked about that, in particular, is that... um, uh, I've learned more about myself and my own bents and and doing it that way. Oh, that's interesting. We're also in the studio today with David Roark. David, Mr. Lent himself. True. That's what they used to call me. That's what they call you, right? Yeah. And Chris Sterrick. Chris. guys. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing good. Good. I'm really excited about talking more about Lent with all you guys on this episode. We're not only going to talk about the church calendar, the season we're in, which is Lent, and how culture can help us Lent well or where we see Lent in culture. We're also going to talk about some of the culture of death in our culture right now, what's going on in our nation, particularly around the idea of abortion, which is in the news every day right now. So those two things have a symmetry. They, they come alongside each other well. And so those are the cultural topics we'll be discussing on today's episode. All right, guys, by the time this episode airs, it will be the Christian season of Lent. Did anybody grow up in a church that really did Lent big? Anybody? You did not, Chris? No. No. It seemed very... David, you did not either? Not at all. Southern Baptist. So I don't think I'd even heard of it as like a kid growing up. Oh, man. I grew up in an area... Well, one, I grew up in a Lutheran church, and then a lot of my friends were Catholic. So for Catholics, it meant they could only have fish on Fridays. I remember that. Friday night fish fries was a really big deal. That's how you knew it was Lent. Yep. Fish seafood restaurants loved Lent. It was (laughs) still, I think they're really big on it. And then we grew up always like saying, what are you going to give up? We had Ash Wednesday service, Monday, Thursday service. I think my first experience was I had a friend who came to class one day with a black cross on his head. And I was like, what in the world are you doing? He's like, it's for Lent. I was like, what is that? (laughs) <laughs> See, and I had like the opposite experience where I met somebody who had never grown up around Lent. And when they saw the cross on my forehead, they were like, oh, are you super Catholic? <laughs> I was like, no, I'm not Catholic at all. They're like, oh, I just thought that was like a godless ritual of oh like, and I was like, no, like, man, wow. I actually really love Ash Wednesday. Good Friday. They're two of my favorite things the church does. But why do you think, why is Lent something that transcends denomination? Why is it not just a Catholic thing? Obviously, it's not a uh, necessarily from the, the scripture directly. We're not told, hey, celebrate Lent, but we do believe there's something beautiful about it. How does it transcend Christianity into just the the social atmosphere as well? I I guess I have a couple of questions maybe before we address that. Shoot. One. Sure. What are we, like, what what is the definition of Lent? Like, what are we calling Lent? And then two, can you use it as a verb? Because we've... Lenting? Lenting. Yeah. Is that a thing? Or a gerund? If I created it. It's a thing. <laughs> Trademark, David Rohr. Patent pending, guys. Um, hey, we got yeah. a patent lawyer in here. Can he just do that? Sure. Okay, good. Thank you. Thank you. Do I have to pay you for that legal sure. advice? <laughs> I'll sure. talk to AP. David? But yeah, <laughs> you, I think it would be helpful to say, like, what is Lent? What is Lent, David? You're the resident uh, church calendar expert. <laughs> That's not true. But uh, Lent is typically, so there's the church calendar, which is made up of Advent, Christmas Tide, Epiphany, 
Lent, Easter, Pentecost. That's sort of your order. What about um, normal time. Normal time. Uh, yes, I didn't. Time. I didn't. I didn't include ordinary time. Ordinary so time. That's when it. those. When those. Uh, those specific uh, practices are not going on. It's ordinary time. That's what it's called. And that's basically just the time where Christians are supposed to live on mission. Yeah. Having known the story. But so, I mean, the church calendar, if you pay close attention, is telling a story. So it's trying to order time and space as a church around a particular story. That's the story of the gospel. So with Advent, you have the coming of Christ and Christmas, you have the birth of Christ and Epiphany is the manifestation of Christ uh, as not just the son of God, but the light of the world to the nations. And then you, with Lent, you have the temptation and suffering of Christ. So that is um, Jesus's, uh, the time leading up to the cross, you could say. So that's a time to really um, reflect on our yeah. sin and our mortality and, yes. um, and to just consider the weight of evil and sin in the world um, before we get into what is then Easter, which is, you know, the resurrection yeah. where Jesus on the, the cross defeats sin and death. And Pentecost is when, you know, obviously Jesus ascends into heaven and um, he sends his spirit to uh, be with his people for them to then live on mission and, yeah. and be empowered by the spirit and to... Uh, share the good news of the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation. So that's sort of the the seasons. And then, yeah, so Lent, typically because it's this time of suffering, um, it, it's been associated with sort of the 40 days of, um, f- of fasting, which, you know, ties back into the Old Testament Exodus story and um, the wilderness. And it's really a time, you could say, to purposefully enter the wilderness as a Christian, to mm-hmm. say, I'm going to, um, in some ways choose to suffer Um, and you know suffering is a relative term but you know you're giving up things which is sacrificing things which is a form of suffering to get the better thing which is you know jesus christ so yeah that's helpful so lent is those 40 days minus sundays between ash wednesday and easter and i feel like lent uh when i think about lent i think of dark colors right it's the colors of like a deep dark purple and uh black that makes Easter seem all the brighter because right. you've experienced, like if you don't have a Good Friday service at your church, but you do have Easter, I feel like sometimes there's something missing there if you don't appreciate what happened on Good Friday yeah. as deeply as you can before you hit Easter. And I do think, um, David, there are a lot of ways in which our culture uh, expresses this understanding of human suffering, human sacrifice on behalf of other people, kind of the dark in order to make things bright. There, Most stories or narratives, if they have a, a story arc, there's a point at which either the hero or the main characters will hit a dark in order to help you understand what is bright and light about the climax of the story. Uh, it's certainly an, a, a big thing in art, but in our culture in, in general, Lent is something that transcends the ideas of Lent transcend Christianity. They are uh, pervasive, these ideas of human suffering. And most of the stuff you see on social justice, whether it's in Congress or in the UN, there's some relationship there to what we we uh, commemorate in Lent when it comes to why we need a Savior and how human beings have suffered. It is in some ways cultural. Can you guys think, how is, how is Lent, how is what I'm talking about cultural. Somebody jump in and help me out. I think that um, the distinction you're making is super important because the question specifically that we were asking was how is Lent a a transcendent cultural phenomenon? And and I probably was misunderstanding it, but Lent itself, the practice within the church calendar, I don't know that it is. In fact, you know, um, even within our own denomination before the recent rediscovery of sort of higher liturgy, right? Uh, I don't even know that people, as, as David was talking about 
in you know the Baptist tradition. I don't know that many people were even aware of it. Um, you know, unless you were sort of in a denomination that followed the church calendar. And so, uh, Lent as a practice, right, itself, like the the Christian practice, I don't know that it does. I think the ideas of it do. Yeah, and yeah, that's, yeah. And that's the difference that I think is really important. Yeah. Um, so the idea of of reflecting on suffering reflecting on human suffering and that leading to a conclusion. Like you were experiencing some suffering right there. I am. Uh, (laughs) That leading to a conclusion uh, uh, that uh, we are um, in a dire situation. Yeah. Right? That is, you know, like you said, many of our cultural artifacts story movies, songs, that, yeah. that is what sort of undergirds them, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's, I think most people can look at the world and say that humans have some inherent value and something is broken. Something, uh, we want things to be better than they are. Things don't work out exactly how we would want them to. And that is, that's part of what leads into Lent as well, is a desperation for somebody to do something and knowing that we can't do it ourselves. We need an interceder. We need a mediator. We need a savior. Mm-hmm. And that's the idea of Lent that, that transcends our culture. But I do think Lent is also, in many ways, countercultural. There are a lot of things that are true about what we celebrate in Lent that are not true about ways uh, that the, the culture operates. David, what are, are there ways that you see what we practice in Lent going against the trends of what we see in our culture. Yeah, when I think what Adam was saying, when practiced rightly, because there is this broader cultural interest in Lent, but I think that that's some of the, like the byproducts of Lent versus like the essence of Lent itself that people are attracted to. But when you get to the essence of Lent, which is what I said earlier, a giving up of something for the better thing, Yeah. Um, I think that that's super countercultural because if you think about every commercial you see or every ad on the internet, <laughs> it's it's about a product that supposedly is going to make you happy and give you joy, and um, you're trying to empty yourselves, empty yourself of those things. Yeah. During Lent, to to sort of reorient your heart to say that like those things are not going to bring me joy, yeah. and they're not going to lead to flourishing, and, and there's only one person who who can um, lead to to those things, and so I think it's super countercultural in that sense because the culture wants to tell you to consume, 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 and Lent tells you to do the very opposite of that, and mm. um, I think that that creates a kind of person that's different than the kind of person that maybe quote unquote the world, you know. Yeah. Um, would that's so would good mean. the idea that that suffering in the christian story is formative and it's not um absurd meaning there yeah. it's purposeful in a sense that now i don't want to take away from anybody who's suffering that there can be a way in which you present that in a very cheap way like oh well you're you know i understand that you're going through this horrible suffering right now don't worry it'll make you a better person that's that's i'm not i'm not trying to say that i'm saying that um s- suffering if in the non-Christian story, or let's just say sort of in our culture today, um, is generally seen as, as a bit absurd. It's, it's a thing to be avoided at all costs. It happens to you yes. just by chance. There's really no reason for it's it. It's to be escaped. It's to be escaped. Right. It is yeah. the thing, whereas this is saying, um, when you give something up, you may suffer for it, but in that you are sort of unified in some small way with yeah, Christ. Good. And uh, and and that is that's a different picture of suffering. And yeah. I think it allows you it gives you an ability to actually withstand it. Whereas the whereas the cultural story um, of escape, it will fail. 
Good. You know, so yeah, talk yeah. to me about how that how that connects with the biblical idea of denying yourself and of cross bearing. Like, how are those Christian ideals connected to what you're talking about? Because I think you're exactly right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so many ways to approach exactly what you're saying. The idea of denying yourself, I think, in that story is going. Um, the the world's going to tell you, no, 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 don't deny yourself, indulge yourself. Yes, and yeah. that's the way to escape. You need to indulge every whim. Yeah. Uh, uh, you need to acquire things. You need wh- whatever it might be, right? Or, mm-hmm. or you need to put yourself on the pedestal, the kind of self-help. Yeah. Or your you know, life would be better your if, life you just, would be better if. if you, thought your, you, you thought yourself was better. You just need to think of yourself that's as right. strong, think of yourself as beautiful, and then your life would improve. Instead yeah. of the Christian story, which says, uh, no, 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 my life circles around somebody else. And yeah. our ultimate example of that is is God. Yeah. Um, and and so, yeah, um, I could flesh that out, but I'm, I'm no, I think, just, it's yeah. really I think, really I think the other thing too is that not just like sort of the world or culture telling us this, although I think that they perpetuate it, but, you know, sin in us would uh, make us think that we are God and that we are immortal and that we're omnipresent, we're omniscient and all those things. And I think that Lind also reminds us of our mortality um, in the sense that we are um, fragile, yeah. um, broken beings that are very needy people and that we, we are mortal, you know, um, and that, um, that's the whole idea of Ash Wednesday, you know, from dust to dust, you know, we're, we came from dust and to dust we shall return, you know? And so I think that that's also another countercultural component to it. And I think an aspect of that too is like, for me, I have never practiced Lent like very well, but I'm like learning to practice Lent because I mean, I, I didn't grow up with it, but even in, in the times that I have done it, it does allow you to to see things more clearly, I think as you're as you're working to give these things up, you find like uh, I I didn't realize that this thing that um, I'm giving up was such a crutch for me, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And it gives you a little bit of clarity of like the things that you have leaned on for security or the things that you've leaned on for comfort that aren't Christ, you yeah. know. And so, and part of it, I think you know, from the Christian perspective, like part of it, there's something kind of sweet about um, when, when I, at least for me, this is kind of what I've pictured going into Lynn is like um, Jesus in the garden where um, the disciples, basically he's alone. And the only thing he has at that point is God, the father, Mm. you know, and kind of, that's like, that's what I'm wanting to emulate is like, I, I don't need any of these other things. You know, I just need God, the father in this moment, you know, in Jesus, you know, it's different for my relationship, That's but really yeah. um, it's, it's a sweet season to kind of um, enter into the suffering of Christ. Yeah, and it know? realigns your perception about what's important, right? right. When, that's why you give things up is to both remind yourself that you are, uh, that man does not live by bread alone. Uh, right. which is what Christ responded to in temptation in the 40 days in the wilderness with his quote from Deuteronomy that I do not live by bread alone. So it realigns what is important by giving things up. And it reminds you to, like you were saying, David, uh, of the need for humility because I am mortal and in desperate need of a savior. I cannot save myself. Yeah. Mankind cannot do anything to untwist what's been broken in the universe. We will need someone to intervene. Yep. And that's a reminder of Lent. So I think all of us could point to some examples, but I want to walk through just really quick as we close out this topic. Where do you see this in our culture beyond just the Christian church even? Where do you see these ideas really coming to bear either on on art or on politics or on the things we see every day on the news? Where do you see these truths that we remind ourselves in Lent and realign around in Lent? Where do you see them expressed in our culture? 
The thing that I was thinking about was um, something that I have started to do, and I tend to just always go to different, like whether it's music or movies or something like that during the church calendar to kind of help me get there, you yeah. know, um, emotionally, um, intellectually. <clears throat> I think the this might sound weird, but the Cohen brothers, yeah. <laughs> their whole uh, their whole body of work, I think, is really really helpful. It's helpful for Advent, which has some similarities to Lent in the way that we reflect on our sin and our brokenness. But their movies, almost all of them really, and you had the the latest, which is The Bout of Buster Scruggs, um, they are reflections and meditations on the presence of evil and the presence of death. And um, and sometimes they like to teeter on um, sort of this nihilistic um, view. Um, I think they kind of go back and forth, but that there's really no hope, there's no sense of hope. Um, obviously, we know that that's not true, but if you're trying to get there and you're trying to understand how broken things are and how there is a sense in which things feel hopeless, right? And that's yeah. sort of what, where you're trying to go during this season, all it, knowing that Easter is coming, right? Um, the good news is coming, even though you're kind of living in the bad news. But their movies just from Fargo to A Serious Man to No Country for Old Men is a really, really good one, just kind of meditating on on these things that sort of death is coming for you, suffering's coming for you, regardless of who you are. You might be yeah. righteous or unrighteous. And they actually kind of explore that explicitly in the Buster Scruggs movie more recently. Um, but it's just, it's a presence and reality for all of humanity. So, And I think of um, cultural artifacts that maybe if I'm thinking of it in terms of things that would cause me to maybe lament, you know, mm-hmm. Um, things that I've experienced that have caused that in me that aren't strictly Christian are things like, um, like the, uh, like museums regarding maybe it's black history or maybe it's, um, around World War II and, Mm -hmm. and all of the atrocities, like a lot of those times going into those museums and kind of looking at just the brokenness, you know, and seeing the things that other people have done to other humans, really cause for me it's an emotional response a very like i'm lamenting just the brokenness you know um that was something that that i thought of when i was looking at that question of like what are some things that in our culture that cause you to lament i think um those are great examples that's one for me yeah what do you think adam where do we see in our culture like christ-like figures as part of our culture someone who needs to redeem someone who needs to save uh, I can think of ways that we look to look to different parts of our culture for that. People look to politics and their hired politicians in order to save them. People look to even their local politicians to do so, but they also want to create art that centers around a redeemer, a hero that can rescue. Can you think of that as uh, something that connects to Lent? I'm, you know, the the. I think um, the fascination with superheroes. Yeah, I was going to say, like, just it seems the most obvious, the need for a rescuer, somebody, and, and their other, too. Yeah. Uh, typically, typically, not always. Yeah. Um, but I think it's interesting, these these almost Christ-like figures who are sort of human and also something else yeah. at the same time, who sort of... Uh, who, who, who transcend, right? Who transcend and who are able to look in and there's a problem, there's a, some dire circumstance, something like that, and then they come in and rescue and make it better. And so, mm. um, yeah, I think in some sense there is a, th- they take responsibility. They, You know what yeah, I mean? There's just absolutely. this whole, and uh, 
so I would say that's maybe the easiest one uh, in yeah. terms of looking for a hero. But I mean, all of I, that's like all of history. If you go back, there is yeah. almost a a way in which um, we are struggling with the idea that there is evil in the world and it doesn't seem right. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the example you gave is a really great one, especially for families that maybe want to teach their kids about the season of Lent, is you could take something like uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, watch it together as a family, and then talk about why do you think there is uh, this dichotomy of evil and selfish desire that comes up against self-sacrificial heroism, and is that a reality in history? Can we see that working itself out? Not that maybe the, the vocab I just used maybe not apply to the youngest of kids, but yeah. there are ways to talk through that, hey, in our culture, where do we see this true? Chris, a second ago, you talked about how museums help you think about the issue of land. I was, it made me think about the last time I was in uh, D.C., and Adam, you and I have done this together. We went to Washington, D.C., and we toured the Black History Museum, which is one of the most profoundly impacting museums I've ever been into in my life. Absolutely. I went to the Holocaust Museum there in D.C. Yeah. I've been to the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem where they have uh, a little candlelight that represents every child, every life lost in the Holocaust. And it just mm. it's all these mirrors you're surrounded with, and it's millions of lights. And there's something wow. that profound about thinking about that many lives lost. Right. And then you think about uh, or oppressed or however you want to talk about it. When we talk about the the issue of abortion, it is an unseen millions yeah. uh, in our culture. And we are seeing it a lot right now in the news. And every January when it's uh, the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, it kind of it rears its ugly head again, which I'm grateful for. It should be something that should be brought up, should be mentioned. It's why we're talking about it today. But how do we see how is abortion part of our nation's or our culture's culture of death? Adam, can you speak to us for a second? There's this uh, uh, pervading sense in our culture. We've talked about before the fascination with death, but also there's kind of a, uh, we ignore death in certain ways as well or, or kind of minimize it. But we have a culture of death. How is abortion a part of that? Well, I, I think where you have to start here is recognizing what's... What's really difficult about abortion, and I can say this as somebody who sort of came, really was captured by the Lord later, um, I think it's really hard because for people who uh, maybe aren't looking at it from a, a human rights perspective right. and might be looking at it from a women's rights perspective, that there is a there's just a clash and it's really difficult. Uh, the, the language like culture of death is probably seen as like a, 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 a hyperbole and, and right. you know what I'm saying? And so I think without the view that every life um, bears value or, or is intrinsically has value. And then that life starts when God, God is in charge of life. Yeah. I think it's going to, it's really difficult to, um, to get somebody to see. I yeah. guess that's what I would say. There's yeah. a searing, you know, there's scales over our eyes to use biblical language. And so as I think about the culture of death, it's funny because I actually think um, there is a fascination with death, but I think what what you generally see in the world is there's a fascination with death in, in the culture. There's a fascination with death and how to avoid it. There's a fasc fascination more with a life free of encumbrances, a mm. life uh, that we went back to earlier, a life that is um, sort of perfect. And so anything that falls outside of that, whether it's the aged 
uh, mm-hmm. whether it's people who uh, have disabilities, whether it's that a, a child inside of you that is inconvenient, which I know is that, that might be really hard, but maybe an impossible circumstance. That's how you start to see it. In other words, any anything that doesn't fit the cultural picture of a life without encumbrances, of a good life, yeah, a good yeah. life being like this perfect life, uh, all of a sudden becomes a life that's not worth the moniker. That's not worth the term of life. You know what I mean? That I mean, I mean the, the vocabulary of life. And so they become objects or problems to solve. And that's what I would say the culture of death actually is. Mm-hmm. It is not so much a fascination with death. It's a fascination with, um, with a, with a convenient, comfortable, perfect, yes. non-suffering, no hardship, the whole, the, the bill of goods that cultures are always yeah. trying to sell you. Uh, and so that's what I would say. To me, the culture of death, when we talk about it, is actually, um, it's the excuse uh, to put yourself on the pedestal and to make the world revolve around you. That, that might be a bit abstract. Is it helpful? No, I think that's really helpful because okay. I do think uh, people, I think the point you're making, and Adam, you are so always so insightful. The point you're making that the culture of death connects to the uh, American ideal. Mm. That if I can't have the American ideal, then I will, that's what I'm willing to suffer for because if I suffer a little bit so I can be happy. But what abortion connects to it is, uh, will I suffer on someone else's behalf or will someone else suffer on my behalf Mm. in order for me to have what I want? Mm. Which is, I think, a really fascinating connection to the cultural idea around it is that people will say, "Well, well, if we're gonna have what we want, which is part of the um, beginning of the Roe v. Wade movement in the 70s and into the 80s was the ideal of if if women want to have the same freedoms that men have in their sex lives, then we need something yeah. in abortion to be legal because otherwise women are not free. They'll be forced to be pregnant is what the, the uh, kind of mantra was of that movement at the time was we wanted equality and you couldn't have equality without abortion because they were chasing an American ideal of career and what, future. Go ahead, sorry. I think that's one one way to look at it. But to be fair to sort of other, maybe other perspectives, other views, I, I think that there you can point to other life issues outside of abortion, whether that maybe is poverty or immigration or something like that. And you do get a sense where some people are willing to give up their personal freedom and comfort for the sake of others um, when it comes to other life issues. So it's weird. It's like, I feel like we have a culture of both death and beauty (laughs) and it it just shows that we're just so deceived um, in many ways that we're able to just see it so clearly on one side and then on the other, we're just totally missing it when it comes to to, you know, babies in the womb. It's and madness. Yes. I yeah. think that's really good. Yeah. I also think there's something about, when I think about the culture of death, and this is not, I'm sorry, David, I'm, I'm, I think that's a really, really good point, and it's not as clear as I'm making it, but I have often wondered about the Christian ethic is a, is, is the question, and it kind of goes to what you're saying. The, the Christian ethic is one that says, um, what, 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 do, what do I care so much that I'm willing to die for it? Yeah. And I feel like the culture of death or even sort of the the worldly ethic is what do I care so much for that I'm willing to kill for it. Mm. Do you notice the yeah, difference? Oh yeah, and yeah. I think there is, a, in the question, I think there is a difference, really. Yeah. Um, and and 
I don't know. I, I guess it's interesting because I, I, I'm with David. I don't know if it's as clear cut as all of that. There seem sure. to be life issues that one side, you know, if from a political standpoint, one side seems to care about more than the other, you yeah. know. Uh, and I think that's why it's so difficult and maddening because there are life issues that Republicans care about and there are life issues that Democrats care about. Let's right. just to make it like really kind of hard, you well, know. And there, sometimes there's this false dichotomy that really drives me nuts, honestly, when people say you, uh, they will accuse the pro-life movement of caring nothing for foster kids and i'm mm-hmm. like well who i don't know those people though i'm sure those people exist mm-hmm. but it creates such a false argument to say well you can't love these people with all those people or to to place people on a, a like we're placing them on a scale and said whose life is worth more mm-hmm. when really what i'm saying and when i'm advocating for life that's not born is i would also advocate for life that is born and advocate for the immigrant advocate for others but the reason and I the feel mother like, and the and mother the mother, by the way absolutely yeah. and the reason though i really want to advocate for the unborn is what's ironic about a march for the unborn or an argument for the unborn is this group of people literally cannot speak for themselves and they are eliminated without anyone watching what is happening. No one is seeing it and our culture has closed our eyes to it in the name of uh, personal freedoms or convenience or in the name of, I get it, there are crises that lead to these moments as well. And the reason it's in the news lately is because New York State and Virginia State have both kind of brought up laws uh, that are really extending the freedoms that are already extended in in Roe v. Wade and in in, in Doe, which was a simultaneous um, uh, case, although less famous, in 1973, that uh, created the freedom for a state to say, until someone is born, they do not have rights here. And if her and her doctor decide privately, a mom and her doctor decide privately that they would like to end the life, they have the right to do so until that baby is born. Which I think people are um, alerted to that to go, oh, what? Why would New York do this? No, that's that's the federal law that if a state wants to do that, that is allowed. But again, because it's a brand new movement and people will argue this is a – New York is advocating for women's rights here and the governor is advocating for women's rights here and the mayor is chaining the – is it the – was it the Freedom Tower? They turned it pink to say this is all for, for women's rights and I am all for women's rights, but – I think we would make the argument that women in the womb should also be abdicated for, that women can have freedom without saying they need to terminate pregnancy, and that the Christian sexual ethic would have some things to say about that as well. Now, there are a lot of challenges around abortion, and one of them is we've kind of nuanced already. The challenge of making sure we are not saying that uh, birth moms or uh, women in crisis pregnancy should be ignored, or they just need to put up with whatever they're in, or that we are dispassionate towards them. There's also other challenges around talking about abortion, around abortion in general. What are those things that make this so hard for our people to bring up, to discuss, to address? One of the things you were already hitting on earlier is that I think that um, we've talked about this on the podcast before. It's just our culture is becoming so politicized that like it's just it's really, really hard to know where anyone actually stands on anything because a lot of the New York stuff, you know, that we've seen with the legislation maybe has less to do with women's rights and a stand against the current president. Like it's just, everyone's just sort of making big political statements and moves to sort of, you know, hold their ground in terms of where their party is landing. And I'm not, I think people are convictionally there. It's not to say that it's that um, sort of superficial, but it just makes it really, really hard for the Christian. And I think this is just going to be the challenge for us with all political issues is like, it's, it's so political politicized left and right that like, it's hard to it's hard to really figure out where anyone actually where where their personal convictions lie. Yeah. 
It's so one note on the recent laws. I, I was reading that part of the reason they're passing these laws in in particular states. There's other states that have had them on the books That's for a right. while. Mm-hmm. Is and in anticipation of a possible overturning of Roe v. Wade. And mm-hmm. so if that happened, it would go back to the states. They That's want right. laws on the books in the states that will govern abortion. So to your point, yeah. what they've passed is actually already um, um, codified in federal law. Yeah. So it's already there. They're not passing anything new. So the, mm-hmm. the outrage over the new shows our own ignorance over what's already That's exactly there. Right. You yep. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and um, you know, I think one of the challenges also is I'm not sure that we've always done a good job of being champions of women's rights. Yeah. And so there So it's an easy thing to point out, right? And yes. say, well, you guys aren't this. Yes. Yeah. So it's easy to kind of point and say, well, you're patriarchal. This really is about, you know, wanting, you know, seeing women as sort of just incubators for, you know, babies and that's yeah. it, rather than seeing them as, you know, fully orbed creatures created in the image of God, you know? And so I I guess what I'm saying is I think to look internally and to say, okay, what can we do to, um, to, to be behind women's rights? And I I don't know exactly what that looks like. So that when we say it's not a women's rights issue, it's a human rights issue. People it's, it's, it's harder to bulk at now uh, in all honesty, my guess is, uh, it wouldn't matter you know, uh, and so there might be a fruitlessness to it, but I do, my hope is, um, that we would be so, we would be such champions for women's issues yeah. and women's rights that at least those within or that are, are that are, that are, um, maybe looking to, you know, recent converts and things like that, they would feel bolstered because yeah. there's a sense yeah. in which, and I have to be honest, there's a sense in which, and I even remember coming to the church, this was an issue that I was scared about. I was like, oh yeah. my gosh, I'm going to come into church and all they're going to talk to me is about abortion because that's kind of what it's like. And, and I was like, man, I'm just struggling with life. I just want to get to know Jesus. I don't want to be hit by all these political issues. Do I have to have a stance on abortion to be a Christian? I remember that as like a recent convert. I was just afraid that that, and that wasn't what I was met with. I was met with love and all these other things within the church. And so I think, you know, that I I guess what I'm saying is, is there's a sense in which um, it is a political topic. It's a cultural topic of the day. It's important. It needs to be, um, it needs to be talked about, uh, but it shouldn't be louder than our gospel presentation. In other words, Jesus didn't come to end abortion. He came to save sinners, right? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So go ahead, Chris. I was just going to say, I think now maybe more than ever when it comes to things around this topic and just as to David's point with how politicized things are, it's just, I think really important for believers to be really relational um, that's, and that's really right. um, gracious in those conversations. I think it's one thing to have a really strong opinion against abortion or a really strong opinion for the pro-life movement or whatever. Um, it's another thing to actually enter into those conversations with grace. It's another thing to actually be active in fighting against those things. Um, it's another thing to be active in, um, supporting, uh, mothers that are, um, low income. Um, it's another thing to, to actually have relationships with people that have opposing views around those things, because you're never going to convince somebody with your words or your tweets or whatever, you know? And so I think it's really important if you do believe that God is the author and perfecter of life, and if you do believe that his way of redeeming the world 
uh, in large part is is us as ambassadors, as ministers of reconciliation here on earth. Like it has to be more than just um, uh, a belief like, system. Yeah, because it's like the right. faith works conversation. It's like it's, it's really easy to have this. Uh, theology of life right. but like yeah. are you applying that theology because those are those are different things but they're, they're supposed to connect they're supposed to yeah. be a correlation there they're not supposed to be disconnected excellent yeah. yeah i think if anybody has a fair critique of our lack of advocacy for women then i want to i want to be humble enough to hear it learn from it and do it yeah. and if anybody has a fair critique from the church as it concerns foster care adoption kids that have been abandoned, people with disabilities that have been born, if that's a fair critique, then I want to change yeah. those things. And I do believe they are connected in some ways to what we believe about abortion. And in some ways it is fair to have that opinion regardless. But more than anything, I want to be a pastor who leads a church and I want all of our churches to be churches where life is advocated for without saying we are we are affiliating with a political party. That's yeah. right. To say we are uh, pro-women, we are pro-men, we are pro-unborn, we are pro-disabled. And to not just have, like you were saying, Chris, just a verbal assent to those things, but see where that argument falls apart if you were to really look at my life. Yeah. Because if you were to accuse me of those things, I want to be able to say, well, you can come come watch my life. Come, like Jesus said, come follow me. If you come follow me and and that's a fair critique, then I have something to learn. If you come follow me, I want it to look like Christ's life, which is that he hung out with those who were abandoned, hung out with those who were rejected, loved those who were untouchable, loved those who were unloved. In a culture that did not value children, he valued children. And I want that be the truth for my life and for the Christian church that we lead and we're a part of. If there's anything you heard on the show that you'd like to know more about, you can find details on our website. Today's episode was produced by David Roark and edited and mixed by Chris Starrett. We'll see you next time. God bless. Thanks for listening.